0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, April the 30th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing uh, you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the security crisis in the Republic of Sudan, where the United States has increased its military presence in the Horn of Africa region. Ruling Southwest Africa People's Organization, SWAPO, the Republic of Namibia says it remains committed to prosperity in the country. Zimbabwe is implementing policies in an effort to contain inflation, and regional states in East Africa are meeting to map out strategies for dealing with the ongoing conflict in Somalia. In the second and third hours, we look more in detail at the situation in the Republic of Sudan, where for the last two weeks clashes between the two Dominant military structures has prompted widespread displacement, injury, and deaths. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the Viva La Musica uh, Orchestra, uh, led by Papa Wimba. Let's listen in.
2: Y se malen, bambaba le kinambanutaleca y anda y se Moonwalker, l'homme qui a marché sur la lune. Au l'a, au de ses côtés chassis, d'habiter pour la l'orifère Mandala
3: coiffure,
2: la place de bichy, Oh 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 nga oh 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 Ndinga ya safari la ya eh. Aketu nani Good day. Cuando One
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was the music uh, of the Orchestra Viva La Musica, uh, led uh, by the legendary Papa Wemba. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, the special edition of our program for Sunday, April the 30th, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story uh, deals with the current security crisis in uh, the Republic of Sudan. And, of course, uh, there's an increasing role of uh, the United States uh, military in uh, the Red Sea area as a direct result of the escalation of fighting inside of the Republic of Sudan. Now, armed drones escorted hundreds of people from the United States as they began their escape from war-torn Sudan, uh, that happened on yesterday, a mere fierce fighting between the military and a rival paramilitary group. The unmanned aerial vehicles uh, flew above a convoy of buses as they made the 500-mile journey from the African nation's capital of Khartoum to Port Sudan and the country's east coast. A U.S. official familiar with the matter confirmed to uh, NBC News in the United States. Several hundred Americans were on board. At least a dozen buses, said the official, who was not authorized to speak publicly. A United States official confirmed to NBC News earlier today that a U.S. Navy ship, the U.S. NS Brunswick, has arrived in Port Sudan uh, to assist uh, with efforts to evacuate uh, U.S. citizens. The official says that it is likely that some of the U.S. citizens have arrived in Port Sudan via the U.S. organized bus convoy will board the ship to leave Sudan, but details are still being worked out. Officials said that the United States government was likely to release more exact figures of the number evacuated in the convoy once Americans had made it safely uh, to the Saudi Arabian city of Jetta. And uh, in other news uh, taking place inside of Sudan, the Sudanese police Deployed the Central Reserve Forces in the streets of the capital of Khartoum to maintain security amid calls from the Rapid Support Forces to withdraw them and so as not to deal with them as enemies. The police press office said in a statement that, quote, police Police forces are deployed uh, on the roads to secure public and private property and arrest robbers uh, who storm abandoned homes after the eruption of armed conflict in Khartoum. The media office uh, posted photos of, on social media showing dozens of heavily armed Central Reserve soldiers on four-wheel vehicles equipped with machine guns. The Army said uh, units of the Central Reserve Police have been deployed in areas south of Khartoum and would be deployed successively in Khartoum areas. These police units are considered fighting forces that participated in the fight against the armed movements in Darfur and some areas of Kordofan. On March the 21st of last year, the United States imposed sanctions on the Central Reserve Police of Sudan for serious human rights violations committed during pro-democracy protests. The move was made after reports of excessive use of force and violence against peaceful demonstrators. According to the Rapid Support Forces, a Central Reserve police force had joined the army in the Al-Shajara area, south of the capital, Khartoum, adding that the army was preparing to attack their positions in the area. The RSF called on police chiefs to withdraw all its forces and prevent them from participating, in the attack and in other news uh, taking place uh, on uh, the African continent uh, in the southern African state of Namibia the ruling party the Southwest Africa people's organization SWAPO yesterday called on the nation to reflect on the party's achievements and to continue the work of socio-economic emancipation speaking at the party's 63rd anniversary in Groufontein also uh, Jupa Region Swapo Party President Hajj Gengab reflected on the party's history as a successful liberation movement. We liberated Namibians to ensure a life of dignity for each and every citizen, Gengab said. The president highlighted uh, some of the achievements gained over the past 33 years since independence, noting that the ruling party has been hard at work for the equal rights of all citizens to access health education, food, and security, among other issues. My wish uh, as president of the SWAPO party is for us to continue and to complete the important work of the second phase of our struggle, that of socioeconomic emancipation, Gengap said. The SWAPO, which was founded on April the 19th of 1960, liberated Namibia from colonialism and white minority rule. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, also in Southern Africa. Zimbabwe's month-on-month inflation rate rose 2.4% in April, gaining 2.3 percentage points on the previous month's rate of 0.1%. The Zimbabwe National Statistics Agency said on Wednesday, the jump in the rate of inflation was mainly due to increases in housing, water, and electricity rates, as well as a rise in prices of gasoline and other fuels. That's according to the Zimbabwe National Statistics Agency. The Consumer Price Index for housing, water, electricity, gas, and other fuels had the highest month-on-month inflation rate of 7.9%, followed by health at 4.0%, uh, the statistical agencies stated. Annual inflation dropped uh, to 75.2% in April, 87.6% in March, continuing with its downward trend against the background of a tight monetary policy and fiscal policy stance by the government. Zimbabwe's monthly and annual inflation progressively declined from peak levels of 30.7% in June and 285% in August last year, respectively following a tight monetary and fiscal policy stance by the government. The Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe, the country's central bank, envisages annual inflation to progressively decline to 2% by year's end. And uh, finally, leaders of countries contributing troops to the peacekeeping mission in Somalia are set to meet in Uganda to discuss commitments made so far and plans to start withdrawing from Somalia. The leaders will evaluate the achievements made in the implementation of the african union transition mission in somalia the atmis mandate and review the drawdown plan in compliance with the united nations security council resolutions to extend authorization until june 2023 and exit by december 31st of 2024 ugandan military officials said this in a statement on monday The statement uh, said technical officials from troops contributing countries to the ATMOS had already arrived in the country to prepare for the head of state summit, which will take place Thursday. The summit follows a meeting by Somalian President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed and his Ugandan counterpart, Uwari Museveni, last December. According to the statement, Julius Kivuno, who is the head of the Ugandan delegation, called upon experts and come up with workable recommendations to support the smooth and peaceful drawdown process of the atmos troops with that we're going to conclude the pan-african newswire segment of the pan-african journal concluding this segment of our program we'd like to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. And since then, uh, the agency has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on, to the Pan African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast, for Sunday, April 30th, 2023, just go to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at Blog Talk Radio forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Yeah, We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
2: We gotta have peace to keep the world alive and want to see
1: Mayfield with the track entitled We got to have peace and uh yes we do have to have peace and uh we advocate uh, for peace uh, in Africa and throughout the world uh here at the Pan African Journal the special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday uh, April 30th uh, 2023 we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit we're going to Listen uh, to reports on recent developments in the Republic of Sudan. Well, over the last two weeks, uh, there have been serious clashes resulting in deaths, documented deaths of over 500 people. Uh, thousands of others have been injured, and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands have been displaced. And, of course, there's an escalation of uh, U.S. military presence uh, in the region. Uh, reports of uh, two uh, naval ships. docking, uh, uh, attempting to dock at Port Sudan, as well as uh, U.S. drones uh, being utilized ostensibly to evacuate uh, U.S. citizens from the country, although many people who do hold U.S. passports have said uh, that they have gotten no assistance and no direction uh, from the United States diplomatic uh, personnel, which has been evacuated uh, from the Republic of Sudan. Let's listen to a report on the continuing fighting that's taking place inside the country.
4: Sudan's rival military forces are accusing each other of violating the ceasefire that is due to expire at midnight. The deadly conflict is entering a third week with warnings of a slide towards a catastrophic civil war. Hundreds of people have been killed, thousands wounded, since a long-simmering power struggle between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces erupted into a full-blown conflict on April the 15th. Joining us now from Juba in in South Sudan is SABC News correspondent uh, Patrick Oyet. Uh, Patrick, thank you for being with us. Uh, we've been covering the South Africans that have been evacuated, all countries trying to get uh, diplomats and citizens out. And to facilitate that and, and some sort of stability, uh, there was a ceasefire. Has it, has it helped?
5: Yeah, uh, the, uh, the ceasefire has uh, not really held that much, in as much as of course part of uh, Khartoum saw at least some calm, and people were able to get out, buy some food stuff and also buy medicine and uh, get fuel and some bread for, for, for their families. Other parts of Khartoum has never, never really had uh, come. There have been uh, gunfire, there have been bombardment from the, uh, from the Air Force of the Sudan armed forces. So it has not really been calm. However, we are just hearing a report that has come now that the Rapid Support Forces have said that uh, there is extension of the ceasefire because uh, the current ceasefire expires at midnight uh, uh, today. Sunday. So uh, Rapid Support Forces are saying they have agreed to extend ceasefire by another three days, 72 hours. We have not yet heard from the Sudan Armed Forces whether they are also for the same. Uh, the information we are having from the Sudan Armed Forces is that they have deployed. Uh, police in some areas where actually calm has been. They say that these police are supposed to make sure that uh, residents are not looted. Uh, But uh, the rapid support forces are saying they're against that deployment of the police. That's where the contention is. And yes, Evacuation is, uh, is ongoing. We've understood that South Africa has evacuated its nationals, Kenya has done the same, and also the Minister for Foreign Affairs for South Sudan has said that uh, at least 25 Kenyan nationals were also evacuated through South Sudan, uh, so other nationals are also continuing to, to try to get out of Sudan. There are those who have moved east to Port Sudan. That is almost seven more than 700 kilometers from khartoum but then uh, upon reaching uh, port sudan there is now some, some kind of confusion people want to leave some of uh, their their countries have not yet sent either ship or planes to take them so at the moment port sudan is also congested with a lot of people uh, and uh, there are also no basic goods no money for those people to, to really buy what they need in port sudan
4: And and, and i think the whole world has just been alarmed at how this has escalated so quickly, uh, concerns about a deepening humanitarian crisis. With that said, I mean, a ceasefire is one thing, but are there any signs of a breakthrough or any signs that the two sides are coming closer together uh, or are willing to talk?
5: No, there, there is, uh, of course, some um, uh, kind of effort. Uh, in the region, for example, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development or IGAD, which uh, is the East African regional body where Sudan actually is the chair at the moment has appointed President Salva Kiir of South Sudan to head a, a team of uh, presidents, including President of Kenya and President of Djibouti, to try to find a solution for Sudan's uh, crisis. Yes, whereas this team is uh, is on the ground, uh, in, in, especially in South Sudan, and they keep saying that they are in contact with the generals in Khartoum, there is still no proper like indication when talks will start, or have they even agreed for some kind of framework to, to have talks, because The the, the issue with the Sudan case is that we are just in the first stage, the first stage of trying to stop the flying of bullets. Uh, they, for any meaningful uh, peace process to begin, the guns have to go silent, and the guns have up to now failed to go silent. So this is the effort that uh, the region is trying to make, to first of all make sure the guns go silent. It is not happening. We are also hearing Saudi Arabia saying they are also ready to try to mediate a, a, peace, a peace deal. Uh, the same to Egypt, and also we are hearing the U.S. talking to, to, the, to the fighting generals. but on the ground, on the ground fighting is ongoing, and there seems to be no clear indication as to uh, when the peace process will begin, where it will begin, what is the framework, there's totally nothing, and that's the worry for for many uh, Sudanese people. There is also no accountability, for example, those who are violating uh, the ceasefire, nobody is condemning them, and they take advantage of that. So, it is a very difficult situation for Sudanese people now, who expect that uh, There will be some kind of pressure, international pressure, on the generals so that they can go to the negotiation table, because many of the Sudanese people we talk to, uh, they tell us that uh, at the end of the day, this kind of fighting, nobody wins in the battlefield. People will have to go on the negotiation table. And as long as you prolong it, you are just prolonging the suffering of the people, at the end of the day, the generals will go and talk and agree. And what good will it do if you have already lost so many people and infrastructure also?
4: Indeed, thank you. Please keep us updated. Patrick Oyek, SABC's news correspondent in Juba, in South Sudan, uh, following the situation closely uh, for us in Sudan.
1: That was a report uh, from Juba in the Republic of South Sudan uh, discussing uh, the situation in uh, the Republic of Sudan. And uh, that was from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. I want to listen to another report that was issued uh, earlier today as well from the F.A.B.C. on uh, the conflict uh, in the Republic of Sudan.
6: All right, so it's just after 10 o'clock, and our top story at the Sawa, a group of 10 South Africans evacuated from conflict-torn Sudan have been reunited with their families following their arrival earlier this evening. These were part of over 600 people who moved from Sudan to Saudi Arabia and then to their respective countries following a 72-hour extension of the ceasefire agreement by the Sudanese Army and the Rapid Support Force. Some South Africans evacuated from the war-torn Sudan say they are lucky to come back home alive. The Department of International Relations and Cooperation says that all South Africans who were stuck in conflict-torn Sudan have been safely evacuated. According to aid organization Gift of the Givers, those evacuated included eight South Africans, an American man and his daughter, who is also South African. The Sudanese army has urged people in the capital Khartoum to remain indoors, stay away from windows, as it deploys tanks and other artillery in spite of the ceasefire decade. Veli Mbele Kazumbisi is an essayist, co-founder of Mutapa, a think tank that focuses on dialogue and teaching of authentic history. He breaks down to us some of the reasons that he believes led to the deterioration of peace in Sudan. Uh, Veli joins us now via Zoom for more. A very good evening to you, Veli. Thanks for your time here on the ACBC.
7: Hi, Lizal. Always a pleasure.
6: So, I'm excited for the uh, context and the history lesson to unfold because I think it's just important to, to establish the lens through which we're going to have this conversation. Caution against it being too Eurocentric. Perhaps we could speak about, you know, the formation of Sudan, the land and her people, um, I know that it's one of the largest countries in the in in our, it is the largest or if not one of the largest countries in Africa perhaps ninth in the world it's not been caught up in the geopolitics uh, dynamics that are unfolding I also understand that there is pan-Arabism versus pan-African ideologies that pervade that region perhaps you could talk to us about that
7: thanks Liesl I mean you've you've laid it down uh, quite beautifully right and um, So the point of departure is to state that um, Sudan is arguably one of the most important countries uh, in terms of our splendid uh, pre-colonial African civilizations. I mean, just one of the interesting facts about Sudan, you know, when people always talk about the pyramids uh, on our continent and they refer to Egypt, as a matter of fact, Uh, most of the pyramids are actually in Sudan. Over 200 of the pyramids are in Sudan. So just from the perspective of um, pre-colonial African history, Sudan is particularly important. And one of its original names is actually Nubia, which means a land of black people. And it straddles parts of Egypt, uh, parts of um, Ethiopia, right? And so it was a huge country. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, Sudan is also a country that's particularly rich with gold, and um, because of that, and its geopolitical position, like you said, access to the Red Sea, uh, and the area around the Red Sea, having countries like Chad and Djibouti, Egypt to the north, and Ethiopia, you know, and the Nile, also access to the Nile, makes it quite an important uh, country in terms of its strategic location. But Sudan also has a very unfortunate history that since its declaration of independence from uh, a joint uh, colonial arrangement between Egypt and Britain in 1957-58, around about then, Sudan has had no less than about 12 coups, right, since 1957-1958, and it has been uh, staggering from one coup to the other. And central to all of these coups, that have been happening in Sudan has been the contest for strategic control of Sudan and Sudan's resources. And the latest um, coup that we have under the two generals, uh, Dagado and uh, Burhan, you know, is an extension of that unfortunate history of the Sudan.
6: They you speak about uh, its history and, uh, the, you know, the government since the formation back in 1956. Um, after being a colony of the British Empire, the 12 Coups um, to date. Perhaps you could speak to the effects of the war that uh, it had on the displacement of people, on the deaths, as we assess, um, you know, where to from here um, during the ceasefire.
7: Yes, and it is important for us, Liesl, to not just start with the unfortunate situation, of course, you know, Uh, Over almost about 500 people, especially civilians, have been died now in the recent conflict between the two generals and people being displaced. But it's also important to state that people have been dying and people have been massacred in Sudan for decades, right? Remember, Sudan is one of the countries that has one of Africa's longest civil war, right? It had what was called the first Sudan civil war and the second Sudan civil war. So it is not a recent phenomenon, and it is important that we understand that this is a tragedy that has been unfolding for decades. Now, like you correctly talked, there has been displacement, and the displacement obviously affects neighboring countries, you know, like Ethiopia, like Chad, like Egypt. But what has also been happening is that these countries themselves have had conflicts, and there has been a flow of arms in the region between uh, these countries. But equally disturbing has been the problem of mercenary groups in that part of the world, right? And this speaks to the role of foreign interests, right? A number of countries, China, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, um, have interests. The United States, even Russia, have got interest there. And what you are seeing happening is a confluence of all those interests at the expense of the ordinary people of Sudan. And the resolution, in my view, is that what needs to happen is that uh, progressive and legitimate and credible countries have to assist Sudan to return to civilian rule, because both of the military generals that are at war, you know, are actually part of the problem because they are actually proxies of foreign interests. So the immediate thing here is for us to have a situation where both African uh, bodies and other global bodies, if they could assist, to get Sudan back to civilian rule. Because for a long time, Sudan has been under the kleptocratic rule of military junta. Remember, Sudan is a country that has been ruled for by 30 years by um, military kleptocrats like Omar al-Bashir. So for me, that is really the critical thing here, to get Sudan back to um, civilian rule
6: vedi, thank you very much for breaking that down. Earlier on, you spoke about minerals and resources. Um, you spoke about it having arable land, gold, and black gold as well. And I wonder if you could help us understand why Sudan's conflict matters to the rest of the world, to the rest of Africa. We're um, obviously seeing you know, how this fighting has the potential, if not already, having spilled over into neighboring countries like Egypt and, and Chad and what that could also mean for for their economies, for that region, the stability thereof.
7: Yes, so uh, because of where Sudan is located, right, along the Nile Valley, so Sudan is one of those countries that um, has contributed to the Nile Valley civilization, like I said, the beautiful Nubian civilization, but also the Nile Valley and the Red Sea also provide uh, a lot of uh, distinct commercial activities for those countries that are along the Red Sea and the Nile Valley. And actually, from the Nile Valley to the Red Sea, it gives them access to the Gulf and to Europe and also to the Middle East. So if there is conflict, like there is conflict there now, it does affect trade um, within Sudan, but also between Sudan and Egypt, between Sudan and Ethiopia, and between Sudan and Chad and all the other neighboring countries. So it does affect that region because Sudan is, borders all of those countries and therefore it is critical that there should be peace and stability for trade to happen but like I'm saying Sudan is being deliberately destabilized because if you just do an assessment the region where Sudan is is the region that actually has the most foreign military bases right over 13 countries foreign countries have got military bases in the area where Sudan is And the reason for that is that many of the foreign countries want to capture that geographic location, right, for the purpose of controlling trade, but also for the purpose to giving them access to the natural resources of countries like Sudan and some of the other African countries. So it is important for that part of Africa that there be peace um, in Sudan, because otherwise all of those neighboring economies are going to collapse or they are going to suffer as it is already happening now. So it is extremely important both in terms of uh, political stability in the region, but also economic stability and the livelihoods of our people in that region. So Sudan is extremely important.
6: Very, really, we obviously monitoring developments to see how quickly, you know, a solution can be found, perhaps peace-restored, security to that uh, country and the region at large. Thank you for your time here again on the SABC. Ubele Mbele Gazon PC is an SS, co-founder of Mutapa Think Tank, focusing on dialogue and teaching of authentic African stories. Um, He was just uh, helping us understand the history behind the Sudan conflict to date, as that ceasefire uh, is is obviously up. We'll see how far uh, it holds as we find an imminent solution for the civilians, perhaps also the region at large. Again, thank you Tavely, for his time.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a report from uh, the South African Broadcasting Corporation on uh, the history of uh, pre-colonial, as well as uh, the impact of colonialism and the post-colonial construct uh, in the Republic of Sudan. And uh, in South Africa, they have uh, welcomed uh, numerous uh, evacuees uh, who were living in Sudan. Uh, let's listen to a report that was done earlier on uh, the returning uh, people from the Republic of South Africa.
8: Especially when the fighting was all around the buildings where they were staying and uh, getting them out and eventually getting to the border and getting up to, into Egypt. Yeah, but we are... We are very relieved that they are here on terra firma, mm. so took back in South Africa, very happy, and the stress is over.
9: Mm. You were telling us that your son was right in the epicentre of uh, the fighting, where you know, the, the warring factions are fighting in Khartoum. Mm. He sent you all those videos. How was that experience?
8: Well, it was at first, um, the, the guys thought it was just a local flare-up and it would be over in a couple of days and they'd go back to work. But after a week, it intensified, and at one stage the, the RSF were all around this building. They even came in there to charge their cell phones. Mm. And um, yeah, he said it was very hectic. The phone calls we had with him with the bullets came off sounded worse than Diwali, he said. Mm.
9: So, uh, and obviously, I mean, uh, the issue of the evacuation for them, I would imagine he was part of the group that had to be ferried in buses, going to Egypt. Uh, you know, Khartoum is a very difficult destination because it's far from other parts in terms of the neighbours uh, of Sudan. So how was that? encounter for him. How did you really just cope uh, under such a uh, tremendously and stressful situation?
8: Well, um, we didn't have a lot of communication from when he left his building and on the road up towards Egypt. Uh, for a few days there was no communication whatsoever. They did uh, spend two days up on the border itself, but it, yeah, it was a long bus ride, many, many hours in the buses many hours trying to get across the border. His passport was still in Khartoum, at the home affairs in Khartoum, and uh, then there were issues at the border. Got through eventually and got to Aswan. Uh, great relief, but many, many hours of agony and waiting. Mm. But uh, it's um, over.
9: Um, maybe it's just families. What do you guys say to the authorities, to the Egyptians, South African government, the gift of the givers, and many other people who are very instrumental in terms of making sure that this evacuation succeeds. I would imagine there is a sense of gratitude.
8: Absolutely, absolutely. If it wasn't for the people on the ground assisting the South Africans, the gift of the givers, DURCO, it wouldn't have happened. They might still be sitting there. Mm.
9: All right, thank you so much indeed, you, sir, for no your problem. time. So obviously, I mean, it's a very incredibly moving time for the families. It is indeed a very poignant moment, really just to get, give you a feel of what is currently happening now. So eventually the plane has uh, finally landed uh, all the way from Nairobi, uh, albeit with a bit of delay because they were supposed to be here by 10.55, uh, so they are currently embarking from KQ760. So uh, a lot of families I can see that uh, there is a sense of jubilation uh, as the families are really just coming to terms with this uh, and really a, a very exciting moment really for them because also with the issue of the internet blackout uh, there has been a lot of inconsistencies in terms of the communications. So at this point in time let, let's try and get more reactions. We'll keep it very short and sweet. Ma'am you here as well? Uh, how are you feeling how about today?
10: I'm very blessed. I'm feeling very excited and happy to see my husband and my kids and our helper. So I'm thankful for our government, the South Africa government. I'm thankful for uh, Jason Munyela. He's been communicating with us. We, had, we have been hopeful and faithful that the family will come back safe and we are grateful that today is happening and they're coming back home safely. How
9: did you guys like, interact? with uh, the one who was stuck in uh, Sudan.
10: Okay, uh, from Sunday last week when they were evacuated from Sudan to go to Egypt, the border of Egypt. Egypt the WhatsApp obviously somewhere, somehow we interrupted, but WhatsApp helped us. When they got there since Monday, I couldn't communicate with them until Wednesday when they, they checked in, in the hotel in Ashan. But uh, everything was through WhatsApp. The calls were not going through, obviously, from Egypt. But communication through WhatsApp was assisting us. And from the media side as well, everything was just perfect. Like,
9: what, what the first thing you're going to do for him? I see you guys have got balloons, uh, sheer jubilation at this point.
10: I wish I can do a right <laughs> white wedding for him. <laughs> but I'm just going to hug him and be thankful that he was able to take care of the kids when I'm not there and our helper. I'm just happy. I'm very happy. I'm, I'm blessed.
9: All right. Thank you so much for your time. So, that's a feeling right here the Ortambo International Airport with uh, the families really quite jubilated to reunite with their loved ones who are stuck in Sudan. Obviously a very sad situation for the Sudanese given the, the very conflict that they have encountered. Uh, this is a very important country for Africa for so many reasons. Located by the Red Sea, a very busy the maritime route uh, the shipping route so many vessels really so quite an important country so we're expecting during the course of the day uh, where Minister Panda as well is going to officially welcome the South Africans who are back in the country. We know that uh, yesterday about 10 of them uh, just landed here at Ortam when they came through from Terminal A here for the international arrivals. Uh, so there's a, a sigh of relief. Uh, there's a sheer jubilation here uh, as you can hear from the families. But in Sudan it's a very precarious situation as uh, quite a number of Sudanese uh, are fleeing the country in, in light of uh, the conflict uh, that has engulfed the country and uh, quite a number of appeals and intervention as well that uh, are being applied in terms of making sure that there is a long-lasting solution. So currently, you ask yourself where are they? They're South Africans who just landed. Uh, they're still going through their immigration control and eventually they will come out and then just
11: get a chance to finally reunite with their families here. Indeed, and all those emotions by the families, they are warranted. Kaeli, maybe just also, you know, just take us through as to what time the minister is expected to arrive there.
9: So we do understand at this particular point in time that the minister is around, but... Uh, At any moment, as soon as they come out, uh, the South Africans who have just been evacuated from Sudan, so that's when uh, the official proceedings, uh, I do believe very short proceedings really to welcome them finally back home, especially because uh, the department has been very instrumental in terms of making sure that this day finally comes uh, where the South Africans are rescued from. Sudan, especially because it's been a very risky situation, but also riddled with a lot of complexities because they had to deal with a number of regulations at the border from Egypt, from other parts as well, but also a very sad situation because the Sudanese, we do understand, others now they are fleeing to the neighboring countries like Chad, Central African Republic, Libya, and unfortunately some of these countries are also just going through their own internal struggles, but also in Sudan itself the fears of what happened in Darfur. We know that in the early 2000s we saw that, you know, so many killings, so many people died when the militias just mushroomed in uh, Darfur. So a great deal of concern uh, about uh, the volatility there in Sudan, but uh, strong appeals as well from the neighboring countries. And we do know that South Sudan President Salva Kiir Nayadit has been in touch with The two generals who are the main protagonist, uh, de facto ruler of Sudan, General Al-Buran and of course uh, the leader of uh, their rapid uh, support forces as well, General Hermetti, trying to really just appeal to them to make sure that they do respect... The ceasefire but also making sure that uh, the humanitarian access is given a green light but where we are positioned at the Oortambe International Airport by Terminal A arrivals and policy work any moment from now the South Africans who are stuck in Sudan will be coming out here and of course uh, There's quite a very uh, massive number of people who are keenly waiting. Uh, Other families are really shy, really, to uh, talk to us because their position is uh, they're waiting for their loved ones to come out and then thereafter they can really just engage with us. But others have been really fortunate enough with their time to really interact with the media here at the airport.
11: Kaya, I need to piggyback on your conversation earlier with Durko spokesperson Gleason Mungela. said that this was quite a complex effort to try and achieve. Speak to us about some of these complexities, complexities rather, and why it was so difficult to try and actually bring some of these people home.
9: It's a very unstable situation, Colisi, as you know that, uh, you know, you look at other countries as well, the convoys, as uh, they were leaving Khartoum and many other uh, cities in Sudan, some convoys really came under siege. Uh, really, so it was a very fluid situation, but also apart from that, we do know that some South Africans really did not have their travel documents, understandably so, because it is a conflict. So when you get an opportunity to run away, that's when you just escape and you leave your possessions and, and really just prioritize your life. So that's the particular situation that they had to face, especially we understand, for example, by the Egyptian border, that's where the challenges were, where some South Africans were not able to cross initially. but. We do understand that that particular hassle has been overcame, so. Uh all South Africans have been safely evacuated. So those are the complexities, really. But uh, for South African authorities as well, they talk about this broad strategy where they said it was all-encompassing, where they were not just focusing on the diplomatic staff. They really wanted to make sure that the citizens from South Africa, but also even some of the neighboring countries as well. We know that uh, Mr. Mnyele, in fact, the spokesperson of the Department of International Relations and Cooperation attributed that to South Africa's foreign policy of pan-Africanism, when there is a, a strife, uh, where, where there is a standoff, if they are asset, uh, and if they do have the means uh, to assist, uh, then they really have to make sure that they also help other African nationals who are caught up uh, in the crossfire in Sudan. But of course, uh, it, it's a very sad situation, what's happening in Khartoum, especially because just to give you an idea, Mkholisi, you know, we just also heard from the former Prime Minister of uh, Sudan. We know that uh, there was a, a military civilian administration at some point, albeit it was transitional, and there was a coup. But the former Prime Minister was warning that the Sudanese conflict could be worse than what we saw in Libya and Syria, especially because this is a very volatile situation where you have so many militia groupings and a lot of them really are getting agitated and uh, there's this very sad situation as well where you do have the organizations like the World Health Organization warning up about a very precarious environment where the hospitals and other healthcare facilities are on the verge of collapse and the foodstuffs uh, are running low and Khartoum for example the capital city of Sudan is a significantly massive town six million people leave there and uh, so there's a great deal of
11: concern about the situation currently. All right Kaeliche Kumalo is watching that story for us. We'll be coming back to you no doubt a bit later on as it continues to develop. You're watching the agenda we continue with more news and live updates straight after this. Stay with us.
12: Guys. we Bye. serve more than just burgers mm.
13: Thank you. when Bye. we say together Mzansi, we mean
1: Welcome back, and uh, we've been listening uh, to uh, the reports on uh, the evacuation of uh, South African nationals from the Republic of Sudan and their arrival uh, inside the country, and of course uh, we've been following uh, this uh, story intensely uh, over uh, the last uh, two weeks uh, since the conflict erupted, and uh, let's hear... Uh,
14: can I can I quickly tell you that yes, the ministers are going to the voting room. These people will come in a bus, escorted by the people from here.
11: National Airport where some of the evacuees from Sudan have just landed and we also understand that the Minister uh, Naledi Pando is just about to give an update to the media let's take you there now.
15: To Sudan, the South African Ambassador to Sudan, Hello. ma'am we really really thank you for all the effort that you and your staff made to ensure that we were able to get our people back home. So really it's just to say welcome to all of you I know it's very traumatic, I know the children want to get home, I know you wish to be with your families, but we could not let this moment pass. And I must say that it has been a partnership with the departments I have referred to, also a partnership that included support from the Gift of the Givers, a very wonderful non-governmental organization that is making an immense contribution to humanitarian relief all over the world wherever South Africans need assistance. So this effort between government and Gift of the Givers has been a really wonderful effort. I can also not neglect to thank the Ambassador of Sudan to South Africa Excellency. Thank you whenever we needed help. Whenever we needed a phone number in Sudan, The ambassador was ready to provide us with that phone number so excellency i sincerely thank you shukran all the help that you have given to us also our colleague the high commissioner of zimbabwe to south africa for being here today and walking with us as we sought to get all our people back home Uh, I'm so glad to see all of you, I know you wish to be with your families, you've had enough of politicians I'm sure, I just want to say to you that we as government hope that we can play some role in bringing peace back to Sudan, because I don't think we should desert the people of Sudan, it is South Africa's policy that we must try wherever we can on our continent to silence the guns. We are unhappy when we see people suffering, fellow Africans experiencing what the people of Sudan are going through today and so we will try to make every effort to really engage with the uh, current uh, conflict uh, parties in Sudan to persuade them to lay down arms, to persuade them to work for peace and wherever we as South Africa can give some small assistance, as the government and people of South Africa I know we are ready to do so and I'm sure you will agree that South Africa must always play a role of supporting other Africans so that we achieve peace and stability on the continent because that is the only way in which we will advance positive development in Africa. So I, I, I'm glad you are back, but I want, you to say, I want to conclude by saying let us not forget the people of Sudan. They are suffering, they're experiencing something terrible. And uh, I, I will be asking uh, in the next uh, week or so uh, that we put our heads together and we look at how we can help those displaced people who've crossed into Chad Chad doesn't have the resources to help all those who've now become refugees from Sudan and if there's some small way we can help South Africa I believe we should do so and we will indicate how we will give help in the next uh, week or so. So really this is just to say welcome home and to say stay safe while you're home I don't want to hear about you doing anything that gets you into any difficult situation. Stay safe, be at home, be with your family and if there's any way in which you wish to communicate with us, I know you know where to get hold of us now. So thank you for coming back home safe and please go and be with your family, have a rest and enjoy being back in Mzanzi, your Mzanzi. Thank you very much.
11: I just want to check if there is a burning question from the media that you want to ask. Otherwise, we want to allow the families to go. Uh, let's take that question. Kaya, I see you are... And yes. yes. Okay,
4: let's do those. Good
11: Please go ahead. Introduce yourself.
4: Kaya News. I just wanted to find out, will the
11: victims be provided
14: with
4: psychological support? Yes. All right.
14: Kaya? Hi, mm-hmm. uh, it
9: it's Kaya. It's Kaya here from News. Maybe just we maybe just, just take us through to the process, how is it like obviously evacuation with a number of uh, obstacles thank you have to overcome for most of Africans to be out of today. And maybe just your point about making sure that there is long lasting
15: pieces. in Okay, to... thank you uh, uh, for, for the questions. Um, I did forget when I thanked all the departments. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't thank Minister Mutualedi's department, Home Affairs, Minister thank you as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, on I wouldn't call uh, our citizens victims, yeah. they are survivors. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how yeah, I regard yeah. them. Uh, but I do think that uh, we have uh, counselling services in our country and I would say for those particularly who were in very uh, Uh, conflict uh, ridden areas, I would advise that they do make use of counselling services. We have both in public uh, institutions as well as in the private sector excellent support uh, that all our citizens can access. So I I really would encourage that because it's horribly traumatic to be caught up in such a terrible uh, situation of armed conflict and we shouldn't undermine the impact that this uh, uh, can have, uh, with respect to what did it take, a lot of organizing, we had a joint commission uh, committee that worked on evacuation which was made up uh, of various departments, the departments I've referred to, I also uh, believe state security played an extremely important role as part of that joint evacuation uh, committee, uh, so it took lots of meetings, Uh, fortunately the fact that Sudan continued to have internet and some communication availability that made it possible for us to have constant communication but I must say our ambassador and her team went well beyond the call of duty in the work that they did and for me Team South Africa showed its mettle and what we have is an evacuation where the government and Gift of the Givers have played a very important central uh, role. With others, uh, you would recall with other countries the government has really been involved in evacuating diplomats and their families rather than the ordinary citizenry, but with us it was our people that uh, we were able to bring back home. On uh, South Sudan President Salva Kiir continues to be seized with the matter along with the president of Djibouti and the president of Kenya. They have been assigned by IGAD, the regional body, to be the lead in interfacing with the two conflicting parties and attempting to draw them together. From the most recent statements I saw uh, this week where the foreign minister of South Sudan briefed all Uh, uh, ambassadors, the process is still not moving the way we would like to see it move, Uh, but we continue to see some observing of the ceasefire, however gunshots continue to be heard. So there's a great deal of work to be done, but the three presidents are giving this matter their closest uh, attention, as is the African Union. On uh, the number that has arrived, I understand it's 53. As I said, 51 are South Africans, one is from Zimbabwe, the citizen of Zimbabwe, and one other is a citizen of Lesotho. You would have seen earlier this week uh, arrival of uh, Zimbabwean citizens in Harare, so they managed to get alternative transport. We also had 10 South Africans arriving earlier this week, because you know there were two routes uh, uh, for uh, evacuation one was via the port of Sudan and into Jeddah uh, in in Saudi Arabia and the other was the Egyptian route that we we followed It was 53 this morning So this morning it's 53 Um, And then you said uh, I take a position on the conflict in Sudan but not on Ukraine, let me explain to you because I think media doesn't always listen to us (laughs) I have said as a country when South Africa became free, we undertook, through our constitution, we will always strive for peace. We don't want war because we know what conflict does to a nation. And so I have appealed both to Ukraine, to Russia, and to the international community. Let us use the best diplomatic effort to bring the two parties together and to have a settlement because war and conflict are destructive, people die every day and we want to end this conflict. That is the position of South Africa, so I think it's absolutely wrong to say we don't have a position. We do, we want peace for the people of Ukraine. With respect to home affairs and uh, defence, the two ministers will speak. Minister Matsualeri.
14: I don't know when I should also. Yes, I think yeah. it's better. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Minister Pandu.
7: Uh, look, it is illegal to cross any border without requisite documentation, especially passport. So, whenever people are stranded, it might be you in the centre of London having been marked or lost luggage, etc. You still have to come back home. So, it's the duty of Home Affairs through our missions to offer you emergency travel documents, We always do that. I've told people that there is nothing called an emergency passport. (laughs) Because they always phone us and say, I must get into Botswana this afternoon, can you give me an emergency passport? There's nothing like that. What they are talking about is an emergency travel document. It's not available to you to leave South Africa, but it's available to you to come back home. And that's what we've issued. Even travel buster, he was fed by us in Tanzania. But we gave him an emergency travel document. Because he left illegally, we didn't want him to come back illegally also. So even if this was an evacuation, we had to give them emergency travel documents. Thank you very much. 19,
15: 19. Only 19 people needed them. Oh, yeah.
14: Okay. The question was uh, the process involved. Members of the National Defense Force swear to protect life, limb and property of South Africa. Wherever South Africans have been and in distress, the South African National Defense Force has not disappointed. This is not the first time we are involved. You remember when your children, South Africans, were stuck in, in, in China during COVID-19, it was young, military, staff of South Africa that went there, system. So, this is not the first time, this won't be the last time. Uh, should I outline the process here in this particular instance? I think not. I think that we should be grateful that uh, our citizens, our neighbours are back home, that uh, we have not lost unnecessary life, that we were all listening to the call, that we all cooperated, and that this lovely babies who are here, with us are here, that we have not lost South Africans yet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
10: Thank you, all.
1: Uh, that comes- Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, reports on uh, the return of uh, South African nationals as well as nationals from uh, Zimbabwe and Lesotho uh, out of uh, the Republic of Sudan in light of the fierce clashes that have been taking place over the last two weeks between the Rapid Support Forces uh, headed by uh, mohammed uh, Hamdan Dagala, also known as Hameti, and uh, the head of the Sudan Armed Forces, Abdel Fattah Al-Bahan. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, April 30th, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan. Another report uh, deals uh, with a discussion on the probability of a long-term conflict in the Republic of Sudan between these two military structures let's listen to this analysis
0: Nigerian students run for cover in Hartu like millions of others they've been trapped in the city for more than two weeks the United Nations is warning Sudan is falling apart as the army and the paramilitary group the rapid support forces battle for control There are shortages of food, water, fuel, and medicine.
8: Honest to God, we work in difficult conditions. We opened the pharmacy despite the sound of gunfire for the sake of families and children. Our problem is how to get stock. The factories in the Bahri region were bombed. The Interior Ministry
0: has deployed extra police officers in Khartoum to stop looting. But what people really want is a permanent ceasefire. So far, several foreign-mediated truces have barely held. These are soldiers near a bridge that connects Khartoum north to the city of Omdurman. Both are under heavy bombardment, as is the area around the presidential palace and army headquarters. The Rapid Support Forces says it's destroyed a convoy of 200 army vehicles near there in recent days. Every day, thousands of people decide it's no longer safe to stay. This rescue ship in Port Sudan is taking evacuees to Saudi Arabia. Around 5,000 Syrians say they're being processed more slowly than other nationalities. We've been here
16: for eight days. The evacuation of Syrians has
5: stopped. The day before yesterday, only 27 people were evacuated. No Syrians were evacuated yesterday. We do not know what is happening and no one gives us a clear answer.
0: In Orjin, on the Egypt-Sudan border, satellite images show queues of buses waiting to take people across. Others have flown home.
8: On the first two days of the war, there was action in Port Sudan, with a couple of jets flying over and some bombs landing. But um, in Port Sudan itself it was quiet, so a lot, but obviously a lot of military action, but no fighting. But everyone's tense. Everyone, but, but even the Sudanese people we work with wanted to go back to normal they
2: just want their country to, to grow and
0: prosper. Former Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has added his voice to those calling for an end to the conflict,
2: <inaudible>
0: warning it could deteriorate into one of the worst civil wars in the world. Victoria Gatenby, Al Jazeera.
17: Well, our correspondent Hibber Morgan joins us now live from the Sudanese capital Khartoum. But there's only a few hours to go before the supposed ceasefire ends, but there have already been airstrikes. Has it actually made any difference?
18: Well, right now on the ground, both sides are claiming that they have the upper hand, while civilians say they've been caught up in the middle. In the city of Umdurman, for example, in the early hours of Sunday, there was heavy artillery strikes, and airstrikes launched by both the Sudanese army and the Rapid Support Forces Mm -hmm. on each other's positions. So people there say that, or at least in parts of Umdurman, say that they cannot see the ceasefire holding on the ground. Then there's the northern part of the capital, Bahri. Right now there are plumes of smoke covering uh, parts of the uh, city of Bahri. Residents say that they have been hearing some some shootings and some gunfire being exchanged between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese army. But in other parts of the capital, they say that it's been relatively quiet, uh, giving them chance to be Hmm. able to go out and buy food or other basic commodities that's in the southern and eastern parts but people are saying that there's the issue of cash and they say that as long as the fighting continues as long as the two sides uh, continue to try to battle each other out to resolve their differences they will be suffering
17: of course and hiba as the fighting continues are you hearing any word there of how mediation efforts are perhaps going
18: Mediation efforts have not stopped since the start of the fighting on 15th of April But the two sides seem to have conditions on uh, in regards to coming to a negotiating table and working out uh, a deal or a ceasefire agreement Now the Sudanese army general general Abdel Fattah Al Burhan spoke to a US public broadcaster on Friday And he says that to negotiate with the rapid support forces It has to include them being out of the military institution Then you have the rapid support forces saying that they will not negotiate unless there's a ceasefire in place and all previous ceasefires have ended with accusations from both sides of violating it. The Sudanese army is saying that the RSF is trying to bring in more reinforcement uh, to continue the battles in Khartoum and that they were able to shoot down uh, or, or, or uh, launch airstrikes on several of the RSF convoys while the RSF is saying that it managed to imprison several, uh, uh, armies, uh, several army uh, officers and soldiers uh, in the city of Umdurman. So it looks like while all International bodies and regional bodies are trying to get the two sides to mediate uh, or to reach some kind of Mm deal to embassies fire for humanitarian aid to come in. Both sides want to make sure that they have the upper hand before they go to any negotiations to work out what's happening in Sudan.
17: Of course. Hiba Morgan there with all the latest for us from Khartoum. Thank you, Hiba. Well, let's bring in Khalid Hassan. He's the acting Sudanese ambassador to the UK. He joins us now from London. Khalid, we're into the third week of fighting now. How functional is the government at the moment in Khartoum? Are you getting regular updates?
3: Yeah, of course. I'm getting regular updates and uh, the government is working. Also, it's not in full capacity because of this rebellion, but it's working.
17: So when you say working, so government departments are functioning, uh, are there big holes in terms of being able to run a country?
3: You know, some of the civil servants just uh, travel outside the Khartoum to celebrate in holidays, and they trapped there because the this rebellion uh, started, and they couldn't come back to their normal uh, life and normal works. But uh, the government, uh, some of the government's body are working, uh, mm-hmm. although the services for the people is very difficult. Uh, uh, but they uh, work very hard to provide it, like uh, water, clean water.
17: Um, Macaulay, you you referred, sure, sorry, the the line's not great, I I just wanted to pick up on something you said there, you referred to this as being a rebellion, I want to talk about mediation, our correspondent Hibber was just touching on that, you yourself, I believe, have praised Saudi efforts on brokering this latest ceasefire, which hasn't exactly held, but I believe you've also been a, a little more dubious about Western involvement.
3: Yeah, actually, we we, we thank all our uh, brotherly and friendly
19: countries who
3: uh, call us and who who offer to mediate in this uh, situation in Sudan. Uh, We have uh, uh, IGAD uh, uh, initiatives uh, that's uh, leading by by, uh, the President of South Sudan and Djibouti and uh, Indian President. That's the one uh, now, I think, on the table. Saudi and uh, U.S. Uh, initiative, uh, mainly about welfare uh, and humanitarian
1: push.
17: Well, I want to also look at how we got here, because I think that's crucial as to how it potentially ends. You are currently acting ambassador to a country that was one of a quad of countries, leading talks around the framework agreement, and that and a transition to civilian rule now feel very, very far away. But you think that the way that was handled is what
4: caused this?
2: Yeah,
3: one of, of, of the main causes of this uh, conflict is, is uh, that the, the framework uh, agreement because it isolated uh, uh, very important uh, political players, and uh, also the integration of the uh, rebel support forces into the army. Those, I think, two points uh, were the uh, mainly points that uh, created the problem now.
17: And so, you think Western powers have essentially created the climate for this to take place?
3: I can't say that, but uh, the, the, the uh, uh, work agreement uh, led
17: to this. Sure. I know that you and your government have said that right now you're fighting to protect civilians, but there have already been huge deaths, huge displacement. The humanitarian situation is obviously rapidly deteriorating, not only in Khartoum, now across borders too. In your mind, how does this end?
2: Yeah,
3: I agree the humanitarian situation uh, is very bad in Khartoum, mainly the other part of the country. uh, Life is normal, but uh, in Khartoum it's very, very difficult for people to to get enough food, medicine, uh, clean water, electricity, but uh, the government is uh, trying to do best to end this rebellion and to uh, return life uh, back to normal uh, as soon as possible. And we have seen yesterday that uh, the police is on the ground and people uh, start uh, trying to get in their their needs from the near shops. So, gradually, life is uh, returning back to its normal.
17: So, you say you're doing everything you can to help end the conflict. I want to ask you, though, as a member of General Burhan's government, what is your message then to the Rapid Support Forces?
3: As a message that they are Sudanese and they are taking their, their salaries from uh, Sudan government and uh, uh, they should put down their arms and join the Sudanese uh, armed forces and they will get a as leader uh, of the army and the president said before.
17: Khaled Hassan there, the acting Sudanese ambassador to the UK, speaking to us from London. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you for joining us here on Al Jazeera. Well, Djibouti is one of the country's leading peace negotiations, and its foreign affairs minister says fighting isn't the solution.
7: Uh, all the observers are telling us that uh, um, actually they want to uh, uh, finish the war on the military ground. One should, should, should uh, prevail. Uh, that's the message we receive, but we cannot, as the region, accept that that happened, Because uh, uh, we, we don't know when this uh, victory uh, of one uh, party on the other will happen. And until then, the population in Khartoum, the people of Sudan, you know, are suffering.
17: Meanwhile, the World Food Programme is warning that the fighting in Sudan could plunge the entire East Africa region into a humanitarian crisis. It says a third of Sudan's population was starving even before the fighting broke out. Now there are shortages of food and prices are soaring. There have been similar price rises too in neighboring South Sudan and Chad, which have taken in thousands of refugees. Well, our correspondent Ahmed Idris is in the border town of Adre in Chad with more.
20: People are still coming. Uh, One of the first uh, camps set up by the uh, international organizations like the United Nations, I had more than 4,000 refugees who have been registered formally with hundreds more uh, still looking in trying to register themselves and their families in that particular camp. And yesterday we moved to a different camp which is Majigilda. Uh, there we found between 4,500 4, to 5,000 refugees in that particular camp. And we also understand not far from where we are right now, uh, some people have uh, sort of moved their families, especially women and children, and are located in a village just close by here. Although there is no presence of aid organizations in that place, so we expect hundreds more are located in that community, and they are spread within families and also uh, spread under trees and in the open spaces. Basically, the United Nations and other agencies who are trying to help these refugees are projecting to help at least 20,000 refugees in the past one week or so. But what we're seeing right now, the refugee numbers could go much, much higher than that. Already, the amount of food being delivered is not sufficient enough to last a family for five days. So uh, what we're looking at probably, unless food aid arrive, you will have significant uh, issues here, health issues, malnutrition issues. Already, the United Nations Children's Fund is talking about dire situation for children.
17: Well, a large number of people from South Sudan are also trying to return home. Mutasa is in the capital there, Juba.
21: The International Organization for Migration says there are about 1.5 million people from South Sudan living in Sudan. Some of them are refugees, others went there looking for work. When the fighting started, people like Anok Deng and her six children left Khartoum and came here to South Sudan's capital, Juba, a journey that took them about two days by bus, and they're now staying with family friends who have taken the men for as long as it takes. And ok Deng says the journey for her and the children to get here was traumatic.
22: My children heard gunfire and saw things they should never see. They are still scared. I am happy we got back to South Sudan safely. No
2: more killing in Sudan. No more killing.
21: South Sudan has close ties with its neighbor, Sudan. Remember this country gained independence from Sudan in 2011. Many people still have friends and family stuck in Sudan, and they're worried about what's happening over there.
18: The same experience that Sudan went is what I went through in our crisis in South Sudan, where we have witnessed people have been killed, people have lost lives, people have been displaced, and children and, and elderly people have suffered most. So when I... So they're fighting in Sudan. It worries me more because I start wondering the pain that the Sudanese people are going through.
21: Kiir, South Sudan's president, is leading mediation efforts as part of the regional group IGAD. He's trying to get officials from the Sudanese army and the paramilitary RSF to have face-to-face talks here in the capital, Juba. Government officials say it's still a work in progress. Haru Al Jazeera, Juba.
17: Well, many people who had submitted their travel documents to foreign embassies are still stranded in Sudan. That's after Western diplomats fled the country. Mahila Mohammed has been taking a look at that for us.
22: Some Sudanese say they are trapped in Khartoum without their passports. Tens of thousands of people are fleeing to neighboring countries. Dozens of foreign governments have flown out their citizens and diplomatic staff. But for some Sudanese, leaving is not an option, as their travel documents are locked in shuttered embassies. Well, we spoke to Sudanese residents still stuck in the capital after failing to retrieve their passports.
7: By the end of March, I have applied for a study visa to South Africa. And by the day of 18th of April, after three days of four, starting most of diplomats and different embassy staff were evacuated. So I couldn't reach my passport, so I can't go anywhere. I didn't get any response from the embassy, no announcement, no phone calls, even. No direct messages. I applied for the Schengen visa at the Swedish embassy in Khartoum. Uh, I didn't get my passport back uh, because they, the the staff simply up and left uh, with complete disregard to the situation. Uh, it's not just me, there are hundreds of us in different EU embassies. It's utterly irresponsible and, and it's such a shame because they have, they, have, they spent a lot of money
23: on, on, on curbing the migration, the illegal migration when they can't even come up with an e-visa system. So situations like this do not happen.
19: I emailed the Spanish embassy multiple times and I called them multiple times. But when they found out I was in Spanish, they hung up without any explanation. Me and my family forced to leave our house in Khartoum as it was no longer safe. My family is scattered. Me and my brother came to port Sudan, but he got on the ferry to Jeddah. My mother and sister are currently in the Egyptian border trying to cross to Egypt. And I'm here not knowing what I will be doing next.
22: Well, as you can imagine, a lot of people are trying to figure out what's happening with their papers. Some are contacting governments on Twitter. The Dutch foreign ministry recently replied to a a visa query confirming that a number of Sudanese passports had been left behind at the embassy. It advises people to apply for a new passport with local authorities. Another criticism of foreign governments is automated responses. Dozens of people are sharing their frustrations online as well. Now some countries are trying to work around those changes on the ground. The Swiss Embassy says it's working hard to find options for people to collect their passports. And the Chinese Embassy says Sudanese residents can now collect their documents in Khartoum. Now with so many people in limbo, you may be wondering what are the legal implications. Sudan has signed a number of treaties, including the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It states, everyone lawfully within the territory of a state shall, within that territory, have the right to liberty of movement. And everyone shall be free to leave any country, including his own. Rights groups say governments can be held liable for not doing enough to return passports to visa applicants.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a report on some of the difficulties uh, people are facing in regard to the availability of uh, passports uh, from Sudan, as well as uh, visas uh, that have been requested uh, for travel uh, to other states uh, within Africa and, indeed, around the world. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal's special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April 30th, uh, 2023, Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to take a break. We'll be back uh, with more reports on the unfolding situation in the Republic of Sudan and its implications internationally. Uh, for Zion. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We want to go into a report uh, analyzing the implications of the Sudanese internal conflict for uh, their neighbor to the north, uh, Egypt, uh, two countries which have held a historic relationship that goes back uh, millennia. Let's listen uh, to this report.
12: For a long time, it wielded huge influence over Sudan, but now Egypt is nervous as its neighbour is embroiled in conflict. Cairo is siding with one of the rival parties. How much of a gamble is it taking? And what are the possible implications? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Nick Clark. So, Sudan is in turmoil with no end in sight to the fighting between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces. Neighboring nations already dealing with an influx of refugees are worried that the violence, too, will spread beyond its borders. At an emergency meeting of the Arab League, Egypt's representative called for an immediate ceasefire, highlighting the close ties his country has with Sudan. But that relationship means that Egypt is supporting one side over the other a decision with far-reaching implications. We'll go to our guests in just a moment, but first this report from Nihad El Abidi.
24: The Rapid Support Forces says this video shows Egyptian soldiers who surrendered at Mero Air Base in northern Sudan. It was released just hours after the conflict broke out between the paramilitary group and Sudanese army mid-April. The RSF says Egyptian military intelligence officers were among those detained, But Cairo says the troops had been conducting joint training exercises with their Sudanese counterparts. Some say the RSF perceived Egypt's support for General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan as a threat. Egypt reportedly sent jet fighters just before the fighting started and additional pilots soon after to support al-Burhan. He and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi have grown closer in recent years in terms of military cooperation, Red Sea security, and trade. Sisi has been working to improve ties with Sudan's army since former President Omar al-Bashir was removed from power in a coup in 2019. Earlier this month, the two armies held naval drills at Port Sudan on the Red Sea. Both sides opposed the construction of Ethiopia's mega-dam on the Nile River. Egypt fears the Grand Renaissance Dam will significantly reduce its share of the Nile's water and affect its agriculture and electricity production, while Ethiopia maintains the dam is essential for its economic development. Sudan's unfolding humanitarian crisis is a concern for Egypt. The journey from Khartoum is long, more than a thousand kilometers by road, and dangerous. People describe having to go through dozens of checkpoints, set up by fighters from both sides. And once they reach the border, the way to enter Egypt sometimes lasts several days. The African Union and the Arab League have called for a diplomatic solution, fearing the fighting may spread beyond Sudan's borders. But to date, neither the army nor the rapid support forces has committed to taking part in proposed peace talks. Nihar al for Inside Story.
12: All right, let's now go to our guest. So joining me from Khartoum is a Sudanese journalist, Mohamed al Ahmed. In Cairo, in Egypt, is Sara Kira, who's founder and director of the European North African Center for Research. And over the United States in Washington, D.C., is Halil Al-Anani, who is uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. A warm welcome to all of you. Uh, if I could start with you in Khartoum, Mohamed, uh, because you're there, it's important for us to know how things are. Uh, with things ramping up again in the past 24 hours, how is security? How are food supplies? How frightening is it?
19: Uh, the situation is as it is. Uh, it's, 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 it's going deteriorating. Even uh, this uh, uh, ceasefire is not uh, holding anymore. Uh, the two sides are still fighting in different areas uh, of Khartoum. Uh, they are. Uh, it's changing uh, somehow the, 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 the control of the strategic places. Uh, the army is still controlling the uh, the airport and the headquarters or uh, and its headquarters, but the RSF is still also sharing the same places. Uh, the the uh, the people are fleeing Khartoum, not just because of the humanitarian situation and uh, and, and 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 the and the um, the bombs that fallen on the houses of the civilians because of the random sharing a random ever striking okay. but also there is a new factor of looting uh, the the civilians in the streets and looting them even inside their houses in in a place like umrahman. so the situation is, is is very risky for the people, and the people uh, yeah, use or take the opportunity of the few. Uh, hours of the lack of the fight to flee outside options actually or to go. Okay, Mahmoud, uh, it certainly doesn't
12: sound as if there's any kind of peace coming anytime soon. Uh, let me just ask you one more question before we go to the other guests. Is there a fear amongst the population in, in the capital that this could get worse, that neighboring countries might become embroiled in this, that this could spread across the region? Uh,
2: yes,
19: actually the the, the, the uh, the people who were in the streets actually in in uh, in Khartoum calling for civilian rule and the resistance committees, the opposition parties uh, all, all all the, pro- the, pro- the protesters they are believing so uh, that uh, this uh, this war is because of the regional and international intervention, and they are looking uh, very suspicious to the roles of Egypt and the Gulf countries as well, including uh, also Saudi Arabia and UAE. So they're believing that the two sides, the, the two sides have been uh, supported. The two sides I mean, uh, the staff and RSF, they got support from uh, these countries. So uh, and and like Egypt is standing behind. They believe that there are a lot of signs and indications that Egypt is supporting the army and the National Army wants to copy paste the experience of Egypt of 2013 into Sudan. And uh, UAE is also. Uh, uh, supporting uh, the RFS as because of other indications, uh, but especially you know they are still fighting with the UAE in in Yemen and and they are sharing okay. a lot of in investments and and economic interests. So those people they are believing so and they are looking very suspicious to these uh, 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 three countries.
12: Okay, let, let's throw it across to kara to to Kara. Uh, how is it perceived there? How serious is it that, that external actors like Egypt and like the UAE are supporting opposing sides in this situation?
13: Well, to speak about the regional factors or the regional actors interested in Sudan, that list that goes on. Uh, it's a list that never ends. Of course, Egypt has a, an interest in the stability and prosperity of Sudan, and I'll mention later why. but. Uh, uh another uh, uh, Arab state have different interests in Sudan. And speaking of Egypt being behind the army or not, it's, it's, it's very important, especially in this time, to elaborate that Egypt is not taking sides of one over the other. Egypt has paid a visit last January 2023 uh, uh, through General Abed Kamil, who's the head of the intelligence of Egypt to Burhan, General Burhan, to urge him to take things further and transition the power to civilians, because that's what Sudanese people want. That's why the demonstrations went on and went on uh, uh uh back in the days. And the crisis of Sudan takes a decade. It started a decade ago. And all along that last decade, Egypt was trying to mediate along with the Juba peace agreements, uh the uh, uh Cairo workshop and the Arab League initiative. So we've been trying. It's kind of Egypt now lost Sudan. That's the point we can tackle now. Because if we look we have been okay, as uh uh, uh my colleague mentioned that we have been Supporting al-Burhan? Okay, but that's not to, like, transit the, the, the experiment or anything. That's for the stability and prosperity of Sudan, because we see the consequence today.
12: Okay, let's throw that point. We'll come back to you in a second, Sarah. But let's throw that point across to Halil al i and curious to know what you think about that. Egypt not taking sides one way or the other. Uh, over the last decade, Egypt has been trying to, to mediate in the situation in Sudan. What do you make of that, Halil?
25: I think this is unfortunately untrue. Egypt, since the uh, beginning of the transition 2019, adopted a deeply flawed, uh, short-sighted policy in Sudan, uh, driven by two contradictory objectives. The first one is Egypt, along other regional allies such as UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, worked hardly in order to prevent the establishment of a civilian, let alone democratic government in Sudan over the last four years. On the other hand, Egypt feared uh, that Sudan might uh, turn into a state that might have used uh, strategic, political, and economic and humanitarian crisis. As we see right now, that's unimaginable and unmanageable at the same time. Unfortunately, the main goal for Egypt was uh, to establish a strong military rule, as is the case in Egypt, in order or under the belief that this might prevent Sudan from uh, sliding into a civil war or sliding into a chaotic situation. Unfortunately, this is unlike. like. Uh, uh, self-destructive policy or, uh, 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 you know, a profit that came through, unfortunately. If we see the Egyptians' uh, behavior over the last four years, uh, on one hand, they supported the military component within the Transitional Sovereign Council. On the other hand, they supported also the coup that was staged by Al-Burhan and Hamid at that time 2021. Then they tried to sow discord between civilian forces divisions that was paid by Abbas Kamen last January was not in fact to support the framework, the framework agreement that was agreed on in December 5th but in, in order to create a parallel uh, process that might create divisions among civilians that's why the main faction the uh, forces of freedom and change FFC the main component, the, uh, the Central Council rejected the process, rejected the Egyptian initiative. Uh, the other faction, the uh, Democratic bloc, agreed and joined the what's called the Kairos workshop. So, unfortunately, Egypt uh, made this crisis to happen along other allies, unfortunately. And now they're paying the price.
12: I'm going to throw that back to, come back to you in a second. I'm just going to throw that back to Sarah before we go back to Mohammed. Uh, so, Sarah, what's your reaction to that?
13: It's very hard to uh, blame any neighboring countries or even any other regional or superpower actor in Sudan when the two forces are fighting over resources and power. And when the two forces are increasing themselves, it's Egypt is supporting the National Army of Sudan because as a state, as Egypt, as it's forward, as a very important axis of its foreign policy, they will never deal with militias and this is very evident, they will deal only with the national army, not to transmit any experiments, but that's like the official party who we can deal with. Egypt will never deal with paramilitary because that's not in its concept of foreign policy. That's what I was trying to say. But mediation, I think, Sudan, is very hard for one actor in the region to to mediate in this i don't think that even the arab league can come into it has to be the us and the okay and the AU Sorry, we're going to come on, on to sudan mediation
12: import. we're going to come to on to mediation resolution in a minute mohammed if i can come to you what's your view from within sudan of egypt's role uh in all of this both prior to the conflict and now uh, uh,
19: yes actually uh you know the policies of Egypt towards Sudan since like uh, uh, 50 years ago has never changed. So the, the 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 policies of Egypt has never changed. So you know the memories of the Sudanese have uh, a lot of memories of uh, the uh, Egyptian intervention in uh, the the the, the Muslim uh, policies of Sudan. Actually, we have this, this like uh, in 1970, 1971 and uh in the uprising of the nineteen eighty five and in other incidents so uh the members of the Sudanese they have a lot of impressions of uh how uh egypt is intervening in uh the politics of sudan so now the 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 the, the, the two militaries the Sudanese and egyptian militaries they are actually um, uh sharing a lot of uh interest uh, regarding the regarding the economy regarding the politics regarding uh, the, the 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 regional interest. So uh, we have, for example, the Egyptian and Sudanese army are sharing uh, mining investments, uh, livestock investments, agricultural investments. So and, and 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 we know in these two countries, this has been used actually for uh, power struggling between uh, the, the, the 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 army and its uh, other uh, other rivals, uh, whether it's civilians or other uh army components like uh like in sudan so the two the two armies have shared a lot of interest in order to stay in power in order to uh, struggle with the with the with the, with the power struggle in that in the two countries and we know that these two sides were i mean staff and 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 Arif were allied together for a long time against the civilians and uh during that time there were a lot of countries in the region have interest in keeping the situation in sudan in the hands of uh these two sides and 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 now when uh, that is when this conflict happened and, and when this conflict of interest reaches its highest point the the, the 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 regional players also have to keep their interests on uh and, and 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 intervene in sudan we have also okay. a lot of indications for example we understand that uh Egypt, for example have uh a military maneuver in marawi uh, Air Force with the Sudanese uh, military. But uh, the stay for uh, really long than a year of the officers that have been arrested in Marawi is also sending a lot of questions of what is going on between the, between the two sides. So, and we, we didn't hear uh, a real confusion from Egypt or from the Sudanese military about this. Uh, this is, all, all these things. All these things, given the Sudanese people, I mean in the history, and, and since 2019 and, and up to now, and after the, the beginning of this war, uh, give the Sudanese a lot of indications that there is something happened uh, uh, happen between these two countries. And um, another question is that why the two countries didn't declare that there is uh, more than 100 Egyptian officers or pilots uh, that come in Malawi. Uh, okay, that, okay, that, that, let uh, me jump yeah.
12: in there. Sorry, let me throw that back to you. If you briefly could respond to that, and then I'm going to move on to Hylia.
4: So it, it,
13: it's a lot of accusations there and a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, analysis. Um, of course, we have, I have all due respect to what the Sudanese civilians want, but no one wants war. No one wants war, even Egypt. If we want something... Me, personally, as an Egyptian citizen, is the stability of Sudan. Stability, and not only stability, stability and prosperity. Why? Because any negative consequence, now the people who are feeling actually our, Egypt didn't do anything until now. We only evacuated our people from Sudan and other foreigners as well. No one has taken any step forward now because Sudan has slided into civil war and blaming neighbouring countries and other actors, I don't think it's the right exit of the crisis. The right exit of the crisis is to push onto the integration of a real national army. That's to start with. Now Sudan is falling into being categorised in international law as a failed state. If there is no army controlling the borders, that's the importance of any army. If there is no army controlling the borders and setting peace, in, in, even in its own places, there will be no Sudan. And then
12: okay. the political yeah, I'm settlement I'm going to have to jump in there, sorry, because there's lots of ground to cover. We've just only got about 10 minutes left, so we need to keep our answers brief, if you would. Um, Halil, you can respond to that. And also just, just down to the, the nub of this conversation and the potential for this to spiral outside of Sudan and what your sense is about that?
25: I think it's very likely to happen. Uh, Sudan is fighting into a failed state, that there is no strong government in control, which means that this might affect other countries. We already have other uh, conflicts in countries like Chad, Libya, uh, Central Africa. So uh, this is very likely to happen if there is no agreement in, in the future, the foreseeable future. So we are, you might witness another failed state that would have a spillover uh, in this entire area. Sudan has at least seven countries, and its neighbors, or eight at least, that have also some sort of conflicts from uh, southern Sudan or South Sudan to Ethiopia to Central Africa to Chad. But let me just respond very quickly to some of the claims that I have, you know, I just listened to right now. I mean, first of all, we need to break this down into some points. The first one... To be realistic here, most conflicts now in the region have multi-layers and different levels, internal, regional, and international. All actors are playing there. Uh, from their perspective, this is very legitimate uh, to have a role in these countries. Uh, but to speak and to say that Egypt doesn't deal with militia, this is, again, it's the reality. Actually, President Sisi himself met with Hamiti three years ago in March 2020. At the same time, it is is supporting another militia. Uh, or militia in libya they are supporting actually a war criminal uh, a warlord like uh, like Haftar in in uh, in eastern libya also if you look at the egyptian behavior over the last again four years from egyptian perspective or from at least egypt's perspective this is very legitimate in order to at first of all to prevent a democratic government this is for egypt cc a very existential threat that might have an impact in egypt that which is a very big, uh, authoritarian regime as we know second I mean, by many reports, and I think in the beginning of this episode that was mentioned that Egypt sent at least 12 fighting jets to uh, Al-Burhan over the last four or, you know, three weeks right now. Also, they sent pilots there. So they are very involved in this in this conflict. And to okay. say that there is no role and to speak of mediation, no, mediation doesn't mean to take part in that. Unfortunately, as I said in the beginning, this is a very contradictory the destructive policy that led to what we're we seeing right now in Sudan.
12: All right. Uh, sorry, the fact is that the region is, as, as we've been talking uh, and discussing here, that the region is immersed in tensions. And this will be a very, very big problem, I mean, not just for Sudan, but for Egypt as well, if this spirals out of control. And at the moment, Egypt is stable, but it's economically in deep trouble. It's going to cause a huge amount of uh, difficulties for Egypt, isn't it?
13: Yes, of course. Well, if we talk about the threats uh, that this crisis might cause to Egypt, they are a lot. We uh, have uh, our borders open, of course, for our brothers and sisters from Sudan, but especially in this time where we are facing very hard economic crisis and it's felt by the people. Okay, so when we receive more people into the country, that causes uh, more demand and, of course, more prices up, and that's ABT economy, economy. And that's what we're going to face now. So the first country that will bear all the negative consequence of whatever crisis is going in the south is Egypt, for sharing the borders, and plus that we are economically unstable now. Plus, later to be mentioned as well, I'm sure you have a question about that, Ethiopia, of course, and Egypt is very, very alarmed from that, as. Colleague mentioned as well, we would be, yes, uh, interested in a government that goes uh, uh, as an ally to Egypt here. Of course, that's, uh, who wouldn't say that? What country would, would, wouldn't want a, a friendly neighboring country? Okay. So uh, 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 who rules Sudan is one alarm, one big alarm to Egypt. The borders is another alarm. And the economic status is, is a third alarm, as well as the exit from the red sea. So, geopolitically speaking, economically speaking, and from a security perspective, Egypt is very alarmed.
12: Right, uh, Helil, um Sarah just mentioned the, the relationship, the relationship with Ethiopia, and there's of course uh, tensions in the whole region over the Grand Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. What does a destabilized Sudan do to? Egypt's negotiating position and indeed Sudan's negotiating position with Ethiopia.
25: I think it will have a huge impact on Egypt's position when it comes to the GERD, uh, or the, uh, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, because Egypt was counting on having a strong government in Sudan that might uh, side with it, that might accept to have the Egyptian perspective on that. But unfortunately, with the current situation in Sudan, it's very difficult to count in Sudan. At the same time. I mean, from a very uh, realistic perspective for, for Egypt uh, to have uh, that government, they think that the uh, government led by el burhan might be a friendly and can support uh, the Egyptian position when it comes to this. But now, as we see right now, this conflict, conflict is taking place. It's very difficult for Egypt to push forward in order to bring a binding agreement with Ethiopia on that regard. So I think Egypt is the main loser of the current conflict. Unfortunately, Egypt, as I said before, contributed to this, and it's like self-shooting, unfortunately.
12: Uh, Sarah, it's true to say that a prolonged conflict would throw both Sudan and Egypt's water and and food security into uncertainty, wouldn't it?
13: Yes, of course. Food and water security is one of the first alarms to Egypt in the Sudan crisis. Uh, Reading some foresight uh, uh, reports in Egypt uh, out of think tanks and so on, It says that it goes to uh, the extent that Egypt is scared that they would sell us the water later on because we believe that the the upcoming war will be on water resources, and we don't want that in Africa. And Egypt would be left alone in that fight. If Sudan is, is, is incorporated somehow with the point of view of Ethiopia, that would be Egypt standing alone for its fight on water resources. And the Nile River covers only, well, that's a huge amount, 93% of uh, our needs. But still, we're going into water poverty, or we already entered water poverty in 2017. And with all the prices up, and we have a problem with the food security because of the Russian aggression on Ukraine. So again, this is like uh, 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 another crisis that we didn't need. Okay, thing
12: so I'm, going to, I'm going to stop you there because we're literally down to our last minute and I just want to end on Halil. Halil, uh, the simple question, which it isn't at all, where is resolution coming from?
25: I think this is a very difficult question. This is $1 million for Shandak, but I think without having some sort of consensus among internal as well as regional players, it's very difficult to speak about uh, a solution to this crisis. This crisis has been in the making over the last four years. All regional parties have contributed to this, and this is the dilemma. Those parties that, 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 that should resolve this are part of the problem. So the question is to what extent these parties, regional, uh, international, and local, might give concessions in order to end this kind of conflict that would affect the entire region.
12: All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed to so our guests, Mohammed al Ahmed, uh, Sarah Kera, and Halil Al-Anani. And thank you, too, for watching. Uh, you can see the program again at any time by just visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Nick Clark, and the whole team here, it's goodbye for now.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was an analysis of the impact of uh, the Sudanese conflict on neighboring Egypt and also the role of Egypt in the internal and regional politics uh, impacting the Republic of Sudan and other states in North Africa and the Horn of Africa. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April the 30th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am your host, Abayomi Azigweb. Now we want to, in our last uh, segment, uh, we want to look at the impact of uh, the situation in Sudan on uh, Libya and also the role of uh, various uh, players within Libya on uh, the history and present situation in the Republic of Sudan.
26: What impact does the fighting in Sudan have
1: on Libya? Their affairs, the conflict could
26: disrupt the precarious situation next door. Libya's war led to a political stalemate that continues to fester. The Sudan heading the same way. This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program, I'm Tom McRae. The conflict in Sudan is now in its third week. The rival generals are playing the blame game, accusing each other of targeting civilian neighborhoods, hospitals, and people trying to leave the country. Ceasefire after ceasefire has collapsed. Analysts fear powerful regional players may be involved behind the scenes, intentionally prolonging the violence. Some have drawn parallels to the situation in neighboring Libya. We'll unpack this with our guests in a moment. But first, this report from Nihad Al Abidi.
24: Two generals who can't agree have instead resorted to violence. The rivalry between Sudan's army chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hametti, who leads the Rapid Support Forces, is fueling further involvement of regional and international players.
23: The situation is very bad, actually. The forces, the militia, are occupying the, the, the streets, even some of the houses, even uh, major of the city, very important places, which uh, can't let the people access their, uh, their daily needs, because there is no moral on this world, there is no great mission in this world. It's only for the power and, uh, and, 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 and money, nothing more.
24: One of the most significant is Khalifa Haftar, a Libyan warlord who's in control of much of the eastern part of the country. He's believed to have close ties to Hamati. Some reports suggest Haftar helped train his paramilitary RSF before the fighting broke out in mid-April. Earlier this month, one of Haftar's sons visited Khartoum to donate $2 million to a football club linked to Hamati. Haftar has denied taking sides but observers have pointed to his order to detain a deputy of Musa Hilal, a known enemy of Hamati. The civil war that began in Libya in 2011 ultimately led to the toppling and killing of Muammar Gaddafi. Sudanese fighters were reportedly involved in the conflict. It divided the country into two administrations, the internationally recognized government of national unity in the west and in the east, A parliament aligned with Haftar and that discord has fueled instability in the region. Sudan and Libya are positioned on major maritime trade routes for the movement of not only legal but also illegal goods. Inland the town of Gufra connects Libya, Chad and Sudan by road. Recent media reports quote witnesses saying planes landing at its airport were carrying weapons which were then loaded onto trucks traveling towards Sudan. Hameti and Haftar enjoy support from the same international backers, influential figures in Russia and the UAE. But the similarities go even further, and it's feared that Sudan may be following in Libya's footsteps, as both generals seem hungry for power at any cost. Nihar al-Abedi for Inside Story.
26: Well, for more on this, let's welcome our guests today. Uh, in London, Benoit Faucon, Middle East correspondent at the Wall Street Journal in Khartoum. Hamid khalifa non-resident fellow at the Tereya Institute for Middle East Policy. And also in London, Jason Pack, a senior analyst at the NATO Defence College Foundation and author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Thank you all very much for joining me. Benoit, if I can uh, begin with you, you broke the story about Haftar's involvement uh, in the Rapid Special Forces uh, before and uh, since the war has broken out. Can you just give us uh, a little bit more of the detail uh, in your story um, and some specific examples of, of, of his involvement so far?
16: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, the, the historical context being um, that between General Dagallo and uh, General Aftar, there's an history, um, you know, uh, of aliens. Uh, General Dagallo uh, helped, you know, Marshal Aftar uh, in the past, mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, attempt to take over Tripoli. Uh, they also have a common friend, historically. Um which is the United Arab Emirates, uh, again, General Dagalo helped um, the UAE in its war in Yemen against rebels, and uh, Russia was also allied with the UAE, uh, UAE supported him uh, in the war in, in Libya. So that's kind of the background, the historical background, which explains why subsequently uh, when General Dagallo, nickname is also uh, you know, started the war, and um, he sought help from uh, from Haftar and received ammunition from, from the south uh, of Libya into uh, into Sudan.
26: Yes. So what what has happened now? Like in the in the days leading up to the war, how has Haftar been involved in in, in helping Dgalo?
16: Well, he brought ammunition uh, from from the northeast, where his sort of main aerial operation is. Uh, into an airport into the south near the Chadian and Sudan border. Uh, And from there, uh, there was an initial flight that subsequently was mostly uh, by land that it was transported um, uh, into Darfur. Uh, And we understand there were, it was obviously detected by a number of foreign powers. Uh, There were drones, obviously, you know, flying over Darfur that detected the, the convoys. Um, and there were very strong words uh from what I understand from countries like egypt uh, but also from the US about not letting that conflict become a regional conflict with the uh, support over of, of uh, neighbors uh, including general Haftar. Uh, so that we understand uh, general got, you know received a lot of pressure and so did uh, general uh, marshal uh, uh over that uh, that you
26: know, that's support. Okay, Jason, what's your reaction uh, to Haftar's involvement? Do you think that this is just the beginning?
27: Well, I want to build on that excellent background that my friend Benoit has explained. I would make yet a further comparison or analysis between Libya and Sudan by saying, Sudan is on the same track that Libya has been following just eight years further down the line. What do I mean? There was a popular uprising, civil society activists. It was successful. And then a transitional council and a transitional government trying to move towards democracy. And then what do you know? That all fell apart because of the forces of what I term the global enduring disorder. And this is the era in which it's impossible for Western nations to do collective action. The U.S. isn't doing leadership. And regional powers like the UAE, as we've heard from Benoit, and Egypt and Turkey and Qatar are all pulling in different directions. So the interesting twist is as Benoit explained that the UAE and Egypt were on the same side in supporting Haftar and Libya, but they're on opposite sides mm-hmm. in the Sudan conflict. And they're pulling in different directions without the West providing any unifying structures. And of course, Sudan is gonna be falling apart. Then when you add in The ability to smuggle gold and to smuggle refined petrol from Libya into Sudan and you have all the makings of a state breakdown and a state implosion. So if you wait some years, you can imagine that Sudan will be like Libya without state institutions with many different semi-sovereign actors, each with their own little monopolies on violence and smuggling.
26: Mm. I mean, you're in Sudan, obviously, and and we're glad that you're, you're safe for the moment and we hope that it continues. I mean, you're living through the repercussions of, of all of this. What's the reaction been there to the idea that Hafta is getting involved with uh, the rapid support forces at this point in time?
23: Yeah, uh, I would I also start uh, just quickly by saying I don't really think that uh, Sudan and, and Libya share the same uh, path or Sudan is going down the Libyan path uh, just a few years uh, later. Uh, the Sudanese political economy is very different to the Libyan uh, political economy and the actors and the context and the dynamics are also very different, but also the way Sudan's transition has been going and now has faced challenges is very different to what uh, was happening in Libya. There are some similarities, but I think it's it's difficult to uh, say that they, they, they're they going down the same uh, line. As far as the involvement of Libya or Haftar specifically in the Sudanese context, uh, there have been these worries. Obviously, we know that Haftar's uh, elder son uh, was, uh, was was in Khartoum just a few days before the war uh, erupted uh, to uh, some for some ceremonial thing where he became an honorary president, uh, president of a football club, and donated two million dollars. It was all quite bizarre, but he did meet with the leader of uh, Himeti, Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh Himeti, the leader of the support. Uh, forces paramilitary and so on. So there have been these worries, uh, particularly uh, when, when, when there are growing concerns about the uh, involvement of uh, Wagner in in Khartoum and all of that. Obviously, kind of suggests that the theories about uh, about Haftar being also quite involved and still involved, uh, becoming stronger and stronger. But I don't. But there isn't a strong uh, sentiment or narrative uh, in country in Khartoum. Uh, around that yet because so far although there are these regional dimensions but everything that uh, uh, the way the conflict is playing out in Khartoum now is quite localized, all the reasons we understand in in, in a very local uh, and and Sudanese kind of uh, way, but it's important to keep an eye on these regional dimensions, but they have not become a strong worry of the Sudanese people yet as far as I am aware.
26: I guess they're just concerned about trying to stay alive uh, day to day. Benoit, what is uh, your reaction I mean, to, to Haftar's involvement here? I mean, How, how long term, how do you think if he continues uh, to provide you know, potentially more weapons, uh, fuel, uh, even military personnel, what do you think that is going to do to the conflict?
16: Well I would say that's a very, it's a proposal or let's say it's an action Uh, you know, the Libyan sort of faction here intervening in the the war in Sudan that may not be sustainable uh, because, you know, it it has to function, it has always functioned as part of the broader network of alliances, as I mentioned, for instance, the UAE. And to me, it sounds that the the overall interest of foreign powers, you know, let's say GCC countries, uh, obviously European nations and the U.S., is really for this conflict not to last. Uh, You know, there's an issue of food security potentially. I mean, the UAE and Saudi Arabia have very strong ambitions, uh, you know, either for ports or for, um, you know, for supply of food for their countries uh, from Sudan. And that's obviously jeopardized. It becomes an entirely unstable country, Uh, not to mention the risk of a refugee crisis. Uh, You know, there's too many issues, and I haven't started even with terrorism and the fact that there is a large part of the Nile, of the Nile that crosses uh, through Sudan all the way to the north to, uh, you know, to Egypt. So, at the end of the day, the broader, you know, larger regional interests and international interests beyond local factions in the neighbourhood is willing for that conflict to end.
26: Okay, Jason, I mean, just one uh, last point on, on Hafta's connection to I mean. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of their, their history? Because obviously they have a very strong shared history, but is there trust or, or any loyalty between the two of them?
27: Well, that's a good point. They do have a shared history. Um, obviously, the Emiratis have paid Hamedti, General Dagalu, to fight in Libya with Haftar. Mm-hmm. And they're both militia groups who tried to overthrow the official state institutions, but had formerly worked within those institutions. It's important to remember that when Hamedi was running the Janjaweed, he was doing so on behalf of the official state institutions. Omar Bashir essentially used him as a outsourced proxy for himself. And Haftar, of course, had been a general for Qaddafi. So they understand these structures from many different perspectives, and they have the same Emirati handlers. I don't think that Either of them will put personal loyalty over their transactional desire to win and gain things. And if the Egyptians threaten Haftar, he can switch sides. That's, of course, true. I just want to push back on the idea that our guest from Khartoum has said, which is that the regional dynamic is not paramount in the fighting. If the U.S. and U.K. had wanted to mediate this situation after the 2019 uprising had given massive economic assistance to help the transition to democracy, we wouldn't be in this situation. If there was Western leadership working with For example, China, to make sure that the Russians couldn't play around and participate in gold smuggling, we wouldn't be in this situation. So we're only in this situation in Sudan because the global enduring disorder, the era that we're now living in, promotes conflicts like that civil war in Libya, like the ongoing civil wars in Yemen and Syria. And that's why we're here where we are. Hamid,
26: do you agree with that point, that there's a vacuum being left by the West?
23: Well, I think the West has definitely contributed to the situation that we are living in now. Uh, Ever since the uh, revolution took place, uh, they have continued to legitimize uh, the generals, uh, the leader of the RSF and the leader of the uh, armed forces, by giving them uh, seats at the table and allowing them to be part of the discussion and also pushing uh, the civilians to accept the partnership with these uh, generals. Uh, and even after the coup that both uh, General Burhan and General Himithi, uh, co- uh launched together back in October 2021, the West still did allow them uh, the space and, 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 and gave them the trust, although they never proved to be worthy of that trust. Mm-hmm. That is definitely something that the West contributed to. But what I meant by that is that the, the, this, the way these institutions, the Iraqi support forces, and the Sudanese armed forces were created, Initially, they were created to work against each other. Uh, Although they were created to work side by side, but essentially they were created to work against each other. Uh, Bashir wanted to protect himself from the armed forces, but also wanted uh, a militia to uh, fight for him. So it it was going to happen uh, in a way or another, this falling out of their marriage of convenience. It was not going to last. But we did not expect it, uh, or, or we were hoping it would not be as violent as it has turned out to be. But it, th- these institutions were, you know, built to uh, kill each other in a way.
26: Mm. Um, I know you can't see him, Hamid, but uh, Jason threw out that was uh, giving you the thumbs up. I think he uh, is in, in agreement with.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that is going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April 30th. 2023, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's program, all you need to do is go to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African Journal. If you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And of course, uh, we're here uh, every week uh, in broadcasting the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. We're going to close out our program uh, with the music of Bobby Hutchison uh, from the album entitled Acoustic Masters. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.